0: Hello and welcome to The Real Rice Podcast, your instrument of famous Asian cinema under the modern lens of Asian Canadians. I'm your host, Raymond, and joining me are my fellow co-hosts, Brian and Jackie. Hey. Hey, guys. For this episode, we'll be reviewing the 2018 Korean psychological thriller mystery film, Burning. Chung Soo was just minding his own business one day on a crowded street when his attention was captured by a group of women that were promoting a new product. He was later approached by a woman from the group named Pay Mi and learn that they used to live in the same neighborhood. This unseen reunion prompts Mi to ask jung Su to look after her cat while she goes on a trip to Africa. Coming back from her trip, she introduces Ben, a mysterious and wealthy young man, to Jung Su. Ben later confesses something to Jung Su in private. With this newfound knowledge, what will become of their relationship? Released in 2018, Burning was co-written, co-produced, and directed by Lee Chang Dong. The film stars Yu An-In as Lee jung Su, Steven Yeun as Ben, and Jian Jong-seo as Shin Heimi, as its three main characters. Burning was adapted from two separate short stories, Haruki Murakumi's Barn Burning, from his collection of short stories between 1980 to 1991 in Elephant Vanishes, and William Faulkner's 1939 short story of the same name, Barn Burning. The film boasts an impressive collection of awards and accolades upon its release. Considered to be one of the best films released in 2018, if not the decade, Burning garnered nearly 150 award nominations and won over a third of them. Here are some highlights. The FIPRESCI Prize at the 2018 Cannes Film Festival. The prize was given by the International Federation of Film Critics, a global organization of film critics and journalists that promote the artistic expression of cinema. Best Film at the 2018 Grand Bell Awards, Korea's longest-running awards. Lee Chang-Dun, Yoon in Steven Yun, and Jian Jung-seo were all nominated for Best Director, Actor, Supporting Actor, and New Actress, respectively. And 2018's Best Foreign Language Film by the Toronto Film Critics Association. Professional film critic Justin Chang had this to say about the film. At any given moment, you can be nearly certain of what story is being told. A romantic triangle, a crime thriller, a dark comedy of class rage, a parable for a divided nation, only for the shape of the picture to suddenly bend, morph, and slip through your fingers. This is the most absorbing film I've seen this year, as well as the most layered and enigmatic. Justin Chang, Los Angeles Times, 2018. In his own words, Steven Yeun had this to say about the enigmatic storytelling of Burning. The
1: distinction between what it feels like to be a full person without the shroud of maybe having to explain what you look like to the audience on top of your character. Instead, you're just the character in Korea. Whereas in America, whether it's embedded into the code of the script or just what it is in our lives to live it in our society, you kind of have to explain yourself.
0: Steven Yun, 2019. General consensus? 7.5 out of 10 on IMDb, 95% critic and 80% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes, 90% critic score and 7.8 out of 10 audience score on Metacritic. Our consensus score is 8.4 out of 10. Overall, the suspense and artistic take of ambiguous storytelling with an unreliable narrator really captured our attention and love for this movie. Most of us enjoyed it a lot, and we believe it deserves a rewatch. A definite recommendation to anyone who likes both artistic movies was Solid Mysterious Plot. In our group viewing, we did have a minority who felt the film was boring, as it is quite slow-paced and lacks on-screen action, since this is mainly a dialogue-driven film, which some might not be a fan of. The cinematography and storytelling are the main strengths of this movie, with beautiful pacing as we peer inside the lives of how different people live in modern-day Korea. Throughout the movie, there are many scenes with various themes, making almost every scene a discussion. This is one of those films to pull your friend to watch and have a long talk about. In the eyes of us Asian Canadians, this movie held up to our expectations, and then some. We feel it's a great film to introduce people to Asian cinema with, on top of the 2019 Oscar for Best Picture, Parasite. Burning and Parasite have parallels in terms of pacing and the themes of class divide in modern day Korea. One thing to note is in Korean films, class divide and the depictions of poverty is quite common in media, which is why some people that are more familiar with Korean television may not find Burning to be quite as hyped as some critics or viewers found it to be. As a warning, this movie has some violent nudity. This film is not family-friendly and was meant for an older audience. This movie isn't intense like most thrillers or horrors though, so don't worry about stomaching too many scenes. Viewer discretion is advised. So pause the podcast right now if you want to be filled in on the discussion. As always, we're going to start our discussion off of the story. Alright, without that way, let's get into the discussion. Keep in mind this will be a
2: spoiler-filled review. <coughs> Wow, yeah, this movie, for me, is 9.5 or 10 out of 10. Definitely top 10 modern movies of all time in my
1: books. Yeah, I mean, like, it was a good movie for sure. I would say top, like, 25.
0: Yeah, I think I think we're all in agreements here. Like, this movie was pretty great. It kind of blew me away. Um, I'm always going to say, like, probably 9.5 as well, if not a solid 10.
2: Yeah, I think this movie... It really blew my expectations away mainly because when i watched parasite i was going in with a high expectation i think this one it wasn't as
1: high but in my eyes i would say i like this movie even more than parasite do you think it's because of the fact that you went in with a high expectation for parasite so that gave you an unrealistic idea of how the movie would be
2: yeah i think going into parasite i knew it was nominated for a lot of awards and it was going for a lot of different categories with Burning, I didn't hear too much hype around it. There was not a lot of media around it. But going in, I was like, wow. Also, I love the way the storytelling went with the ambiguity.
0: Uh, I just want to chime in with, like some fun trivia, since we're talking about Parasite immediately into this discussion. Apparently, Parasite and Burning were both in the pool to be nominated for the Oscars last year. But the judges chose Parasite over Burning
2: for the nominations I thought they were different years, though. Burning was 2018 while Parasite was 2019.
0: Yeah, that's what I thought, too. But when I was looking into the research, they actually put Burning into the 2019 pool instead of the 2018 pool. I think they must have missed the window for 2018, and that's why they did it that way. But I just thought it was kind of funny that both films touch on such similar ideas and themes that they're even on contest with each other to get the Oscar nomination and then Parasite won out. And I feel like that's how a lot of people felt about the film in general when compared the two,
2: which is why, like, all the hype is on Parasite rather than burning. Yeah, I do feel Parasite is more catered toward a more general audience, mainly because it has more on screen action than what's the movie they call it again?
0: Burning? I mean, more... <laughs> yeah, sorry. Sorry, more <laughs> It's alright. But yeah, that's all you want to talk about the plot of this film, right?
2: You said it was very solid in your opinion, the storytelling? Yeah, I think for me I really love the ambiguousness and how there was plausible deniability that Ben didn't actually kill her at all. And mainly actually just likes burning greenhouses. I think what I really liked about it is because John Su is an unreliable narrator, what we see is purely from his perspective and why he ends up killing Ben at the end. But at the same time, if you really think about the film, there's a lot of ambiguousness and there are subplots inside actual
1: plots. Yeah, I agree with that. Interesting Thing about movies, have you noticed a lot of like narrations in movies, books? It's never from like the character that has his life established, kind of like how Ben has it. It's usually from like the character that's more, I guess, that's more kind of relatable. You're more like of a average person, kind of like John su
2: Yeah. So I think one of the great parts of this movie, and let's talk about a lot of other movies. People love watching the underdog. People cheer for the underdog. There's a psychological phenomenon where why people actually like cheering for the underdog more than anything.
0: Also, just for story progression and character arcs, you want to have a protagonist that's not very established in the beginning that can grow throughout the story. If you open up a guy who just has everything together, what, what do you do
2: in that movie or that story? Like, There's not a lot of things to go from there. There's some comedic shows, kind of like One Punch Man, that kind of has his whole life kind of together by, you know, episode one. Yeah. Like, he has a different kind of struggle, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, I get it, I get it. But like, I feel like in a lot of movies like this, where it's more psychological, more like character studies, that you kind of need to have a protagonist that's a little unsure of himself
2: or just not in a great place in life. Yeah, I agree with that. Although, I think Ben had some issues in terms of, like, he's definitely cold, possibly even a little bit, uh, what's the word? Again? Like, Psychopath? Sociopath? Yeah. So, yeah, and possibly he's
1: actually psychopathic. I think that's a really cool character to have. He definitely does shows tendencies of either like sociopathic or psychopathic. Interesting fact: I believe a sociopath has like moral dilemmas. Actually, no, I correct myself. They don't have moral dilemmas, but they won't cause physical harm on people. Uh, whereas psychopaths they will actually carry out like murderous intention of acts towards others. So that's a very interesting like distinction. But like, I also get the feeling that like he might be a person that was neglected as a kid. Maybe perhaps that's a contributor to as to why he's so cold and detached from the world and people around him.
2: That's a good point. We don't really see his parents in the movie. Like We see both Jong-Soo's mother and father, as well as Haimi's mother and sister in the film, but never Ben's family. Wait, when uh, Jung-soo was stalking Ben and he was having dinner at this
0: art gallery, because apparently you can do that, or maybe it was lunch, he was with a family, wasn't he? Like, with little kids
2: and, like, older people. So I guess we technically saw his family? Well, it was never pointed out whether us family or not. It could have just been, like, just close family friend kind of thing. That's or, true. Or, like, somebody he has a close relationship, either in a business or probably in a church, because there was a scene that he is very integrated member of church.
1: Yeah, like I agree with what Ryan just said. He doesn't seem very close with, like, close, but not exactly very intimate with the people at the table. He's like a very popular guy, but he's also a very lonely guy at the same time. I guess so. I I don't think lonely is the right word. I feel like he's just very detached.
2: Yeah, I definitely feel like he comes off the cool kind of vibe. He's trying to be more, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Man, I'm losing all my words today. This is a, this a
0: bit... I don't know, man. <laughs> kind of uh, badass, maybe? Uh, no, he's... Give me give me the definition, I'll give you
2: the word. <laughs> like, he, he's a little detached from everybody else. Like, he keeps ev- oh he keeps aloof? everything to himself. He's no, very aloof. He, he's, aloof. I think he's definitely a little bit aloof. And maybe that's just the person he is. He likes keeping everything to himself. No, you know, keep his cards tight to his uh, chest. One thing I really like about him is how much he got his life together. I think... Part of the theme is like the whole, almost like an alpha beta male. Sorry if that's like not the correct term. I think in a way, jong has some envy of Ben in terms of like, you know, how well off he is, how many friends he has, how well integrated in society he is, how rich and how good looking he is.
0: Yeah, it's kind of, like, funny, because I think they gave uh, Jung-soo all these negative characteristics in general, and then it just forms into this beta male personality. Like, he's timid, he's meek, he's not exactly outgoing or social, he doesn't have a lot of friends. And then they added on these other traits, like, oh, he's poor, he's not exactly well-off, he's not motivated, and all these other things. And they just made this really sorry character, and they attributed the exact
2: opposites to Ben, which makes him feel more alpha. Yeah. Uh, one thing I did not like about Ben, though, is you can see how he ends up being almost like has a lot of hubris. He's very smug toward jong I mean, it's kind of like unspoken truth in a way that jong Su in every way is quote unquote worse than Ben in the eyes of society. And I think that comes up with another topic of how a lot of us put up a facade for society. How well off you are, how many friends, what's your characteristic? We don't have a choice, especially in Korea, where your appearance is everything. Uh, one quote I really like, where there was a possibility that she was running away, quote unquote, many of them have credit card debt, and because of the debt, they just run away. Hi, me too. One day, her phone is off. Actually, a woman has a lot of things to spend money on. It's hard being a woman. You put on too much or too little makeup. They criticize you. Same with dressing too little or too much. I think it really goes to show like, how much people care about what they look like.
1: So I just want to like comment on the last point about Ben being arrogant with smug. So I guess the reason he's smug is because he's very, very successful. Successful people do tend to come off like that at times. I'm just wondering though, what if Jung-soo was also very successful? Would he also be very smug? I feel like he could be just because of how how much hubris he kind of shown when he was at the uh, warehouse interview. He just kind of straight up left and when asked about his schedule. I think that kind of shows what type of character he is. I bet that he's definitely thinks of himself highly to a certain extent that he wouldn't allow himself to work at a warehouse. So I feel like even though he's not well off, he still has tendencies of being slightly arrogant.
2: Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think psychological-wise... There is a phenomenon where most people believe they're better than the average person. I believe there was a survey a long time ago where they asked each person, like, do you believe you're the better than the average driver? And I think it was like 70 or 80% of people believe, yeah, I'm, I'm better than the average driver, which statistically is impossible. Only half the people can be better than the average driver. It's a way for us as a human mind to not be depressed. If you always think yourself you're subject of inferior, you might not end up doing anything. There is an extent of why people do that. I think jong has too much hubris. He takes it a little too far. He believes he's so much better than everybody else. He believes these kind of
1: jobs are just beneath him just because he has a literature degree. Mm -hmm. Just an interesting fact, because you mentioned the survey about drivers and being better than average. There was also a study a couple years back where they surveyed a bunch of people for them to rate their appearance. And the average was a good 7 out of 10. So that means that most people do believe that they're above average in terms of looks.
2: Yeah, I think it's a way of survival because if you believe you're always worse than the average person, you might not even bother trying. You know, you still need to understand you need to put in hard work in order to get anywhere in life. And I think jong not saying he's not hardworking, but he does lack the idea of like working from ground up, starting everything from scratch.
0: Yeah, I think jong is like a really unmotivated character. We got like three, four scenes of him just lying down in his bed, not doing anything where he could have spent that time. I don't know, like... Maybe writing that book he was supposed to be writing, or at least like looking into ideas, working on the farm, helping his dad with his court case that went nowhere and stuff like that. There's all these things he could have done, but he'd rather lie in bed. So he just feels like a very
2: unmotivated and really passive protagonist and person overall. I mean, possibly he's also depressed too, his dad going through trials and jail. I do feel, though, that all of us have lazy days. I do think he takes it a little too far. Just because he's like, oh, well, I'm not going to be as successful as Ben anyway, so let me just lie around. And he has been working on this quote-unquote book forever, and he just never got around to write it. I think a good tip for all listeners, including for myself as well, sometimes the hardest part is just starting. And it really goes to show, you know, if he just started earlier, he might have gotten a little
1: better than what he had at the end. I think that like the whole being arrogant thing can also segue into being prideful. Just like how uh, Jung Soo's dad will not admit what he has done is wrong. I mean, he assaulted another person, but he's unwilling to admit that in writing. Even though that the person would have forgiven him and possibly just thrown the case out of court if he had just received an apology from him. But he refused not to, and that consequence could lead him to be incarcerated for years. But he chose his pride over anything else yeah swallowing with pride is probably one of the hardest thing to do and you know i even feel like sometimes it's
2: hard for me to admit fault and you know you, we improve day by day i was just recognizing that hey sometimes you know i'm wrong it's time to admit fault but it, it just feels hard it's sometimes hard to swallow
1: i feel like it's also a sign of immaturity if you're too prideful it definitely takes a lot of work and growth that involves for you to kind of just drop your ego and kind of admit that you're not right all the time
0: yeah, I feel like all the characters in this movie have some level of hubris and pride. As we all know, like, Ben's too prideful overall. He's a walking success story. Junsu's dad is too prideful to admit fault in court. Junsu himself is too prideful to even, like, start working if he knows he's not going to succeed. Amy's pretty prideful, too, because she's, like, this free spirit type person who doesn't really want to, like, anchor down and put the work in to do something proper. And that she's, like, learning pantomime. She's taking weird promotional jobs. She's going off to Africa for a couple months just too prideful to really just do the work and just wants to like be her. Like, everyone here has got like a lot of pride going on. And if someone
2: showed some humility, maybe things would have turned out the way they have. Um, one thing that does allude to is sometimes you have to be careful which bridges you accidentally burn. The last thing jong Su ever said to Heimi was, quote-unquote, why do you take off your clothes off so easily in front of men? Only prostitutes take off their clothes like that. To me, I feel that was such a tragic scene. Knowing like later on that's the final thing he gets to say to Heimi, to the person that he loves. I think sometimes we need to take a step back, take a good long look at the big picture, and see where you really want to go. Almost like don't fall for the heat of
1: the moment. It's really interesting that scene was displayed in the movie when he kind of called her a prostitute because it kind of plays into the modern trope of like being a nice guy, right? It's like a nice guy would do all these things for women like what he kind of did for Amy, right? Taking care of her cat, you know, all that, just be on her good side, so to speak. And then when he sees that she's just slipping away from him to a more successful man, then the whole backlash just came through. Yeah, that's actually one of the things I really dislike about Jong-Soo. I
2: think it was good that he was, you know, just taking care of her cat with no expectation, making friends. So I think that was all good. But up until the point of where he was basically like, almost getting angry at her for her liking a quote-unquote better guy. I think at some point, you need to kind of let go, step back. And I feel jong kind of like, oh, I just want that thing over Ben. It was some hubris to it. I think there was one line where Ben said, This is the only time I have felt jealousy of Haimi liking you. I feel that really goes to show how Jong Su really won that victory. Partially, why Jong Su is not a likable character is he blames a lot of his issues partially on society, then, you know, pulling himself up by his own bootstrap. Not saying that economy is easy these days, especially I think there was a scene where they had Trump talking about and how OECD countries, Korea has one of the highest unemployment rate among young people. And as you can see in this generation, employment is just so, so hard in the 20s and 30s to make a good, well-off household income. And it's just very tragic to see, like, this is how us as a society will progress forward. Most people will actually end up more in Chong Su's position than Ben's. And I think it goes to show how quote unquote poor the current society is. Especially when jong Jiangsu's mother was just calling. She was trying to pretend to be rich, but she actually needed five million won, which isn't actually that much money. It's about five thousand dollar US or six thousand dollar Canadian. It's kinda of a lot of money, man. Uh I'm not saying it's a small amount of money, but it's not like hundred grand, you know. If it was hundred grand, I'd be like, oh well, I, I there's no way I could pay that off. Five grand I'm like, okay, you know, I could probably save up like you know, good six seven months and pay it off for you her whole pretense of being well off but like you don't really know her story and there's some ambiguousness
1: of whether she's actually rich or poor i just wanted to throw an interesting fact apparently like a good percentages of like americans or canadians in general are living paycheck to paycheck so i guess in that sense five grand isn't much but i guess to like a working professional let's say accountant lawyer doctor engineer 5k really isn't a whole lot of money
2: i think going back do that though there is some ambiguity with why she needs the money in the first place and i think throughout the entire movie there's just so much ambiguousness like for example the cat hey me just asked like hey can you take care of my cat
0: there's no there's no cat was there ever a cat because i mean the food's been eaten but she was in that apartment for like the whole day just chilling on her bed and didn't see a cat the whole time like
1: that's odd there must be a cat, right? Because Ben adopted the cat, and then Junsu recognized the cat, so doesn't that mean that it's a cat that Amy had?
2: He thought it was Boyle, the name of the cat, because that's what he responded to. But again, there's plausible deniability whether or not that is the cat, because he never seen the cat until quote-unquote Ben has it.
0: The whole cat thing just felt kind of odd, and there's
1: no explanation, which there's a lot of things like that in the movie. So I guess it's a possibility that the cat ran away and then like it just so happened to like recognize the name Boyle or Jungsu is just making things up and like in his head that that cat is Boyle because the cat kind of responded to that name.
2: Yeah, exactly. There's an ambiguity whether or not that cat is the cat or did Amy, quote unquote left for vacation or something, took the cat with her. I think part of it is we never seen the cat. We have no evidence of ever seen the cat. The cat is a animal representation of Hami. Also, like the ambiguousness, whether or not she disappeared
1: or whether or not she actually got murdered by Ben. That's pretty interesting. The whether or not there's a cat because the day that he came over, they hooked up. Was it just like a plot device to have the cat there? And, like, what's up with them having sex? Was that just her way of, like, getting him over and then hook up with him? Or was it just fan service on the creator's part to just have a sex scene to kind of drive the story? It would be fan service. But I think part of it, it brings back up when Ben said
2: she's actually a lonelier person than she seems. And that's a possibility, right? It seems on the outside she's quote-unquote pretty so she must be popular and we see that in society where we see like pretty girls must have like a lot of friends but it could not be true right it could be a lot of them could actually be lonely people
1: you know what i kind of do agree like i do know some friends of mine that are pretty but they only have like few friends they do seem very popular and stuff but like a lot of people that follow them on instagram or a lot of people that kind of say hi to them on the streets or like act like their friends aren't necessarily like friends more like They're there because, oh, you're pretty, you must be popular, so I'm going to hang out with you to kind of get that, like, popularity on me as well. Kind of, like, associate with those that are popular and make you popular.
2: Isn't that what Hamey kind of does with Ben? Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think Hamey definitely saw Ben and saw Ben had a lot of friends. And, you know, Hamey really wanted to get into that quote-unquote crowd of, like, rich people. But there was that scene where all Ben's friend sees Heimi and the other girl as almost like
1: playthings, things, right? Like, almost like things of interest, and not actually want to be friends with them. So when you said the other girl, you're talking about the girl that Ben dated later on, the retail girl?
2: Yeah, that's correct.
1: That's interesting. Like, I, I definitely did notice, like, the scene where like Amy was eating with his friends, you know, how like rich people, they talk about completely different things than your average folks, right? Because of the money that they have and the things that they can do. So I definitely did see that. Like she was definitely not integrating well with the crowd.
2: Yeah, I think it's a good illustration of class divide. Almost a rich and the poor lives differently. And because of that, those people kind of end up play things. So like, hey, you know, like, what? Well, how do the poor people live? It's funny you guys mentioned this because I think the scene right after they have dinner together
0: with rich friends, it's just Jungsu like shoveling up manure from a cow. Just this stark contrast like,
1: immediately in the cinematography itself. What was interesting, and I can kind of draw a reflection of my own life, is that I didn't really travel that much before I graduated. So like when people talk about traveling stuff in university or even high school— I was pretty much, like, left out of conversation. I sat there and listened to them talk about it, and I didn't really feel any connection to that. And then after university, I started traveling more. Actually, well, during university and after university, I started traveling more. And now I can kind of, like, make a connection and just realize, wow, like, it was really because of the money that prevented me to travel and prevented me from, like, talking about these with people that, you know, could travel.
0: Oh, yeah, I'm 100% the same way. I didn't travel until probably last year. And I was like, oh, man, traveling is great. I'm going to do it more in 2020. And then, well, we don't know how that kind of turned out. But, yeah, I totally agree. A richer lifestyle and a higher social status lets you just have fun in much more expensive and extravagant ways. And the traveling is definitely one of those where, like, I'm assuming most poor people in Korea
2: can't have that luxury. Hell, I don't even think it's a quote-unquote rich people thing even middle class actually has a hard time traveling because traveling costs a lot of money it's not something that most people can do and i think with the internet and people seeing instagrams like oh look at all these people traveling and stuff it makes you feel like oh you know i'm poor i can't travel but the reality is most people can't really travel It what costs like five grand to travel i'll say like a month where are you traveling to okay i I think when we went on the road trip recently it was about a grand a person and we were super cheap we're like carpooling that's already one grand right and that's not something that people could just fork up like on the spot so we're talking about let's say you're taking a plane ticket that's another grand you know you book hotels and stuff another two grand or whatever so i think all in all travel is for the rich it's a privilege and i think part of it is when you see these kind of people on social media and they have like oh i look at me traveling it puts up a fake facade of quote, unquote, what's normal when the reality is
1: most people can't travel I wouldn't say rich per se, i say, like, probably middle-upper class, right? Just want to clarify that.
0: We're using the term rich pretty liberally and just throwing it out there, but I think in Korea, the upper-middle class and, like, the lower-income people, the divide is so huge, we might as well interpret it as rich and poor.
2: Yeah, I think you guys bring a good point. When I mean rich, I don't mean, like, the 1%, I mean, like, usually, like, the 10%, and that's usually the upper-middle class. But, yeah, I think if you're, like, a lower-middle class even, like, you know, you're not bad. You have a house, yeah you know, nice things. But travel, travel is another story. And speaking of, you know, I think there's a good theme to this movie about how facades people put up for each other. The very first couple minutes of her, quote unquote, acting and eating an orange, where she didn't actually have an orange, it kind of draws parallel of how people, some people, you know, fake their Instagram, kind of like, oh, look at me in this private jet, or look at me, you know, traveling all these places, and it turns out they're Photoshop. and there's dozens of cases of this. I'm just like, it's almost like her... Pretend you eat an orange, but you didn't actually have an orange. And then later on, we see you know people putting up their facades. You know, Jongsu didn't like his image as a farmer, so he tried to clean up right before Ben showed up, as well as Jongsu really envying Ben as well.
0: It's funny that you say that you interpret the tangerine eating as a facade thing, because I think the common um, interpretation is that. She makes a big point about like the keys to remember that there's no tangerine there at all. And a lot of people interpret that as, "Oh, maybe there's nothing like nefarious underneath Ben." But a lot of people kind of equate the ambiguity of like is there a tangerine or not to the entire like ambiguity of the film. So I think the the whole facade interpretation is like it's, I've never heard that before. I didn't like see that anywhere when I was like doing research on the film like, "Wow, that's actually a really interesting
1: opinion." For the sake of clarity for the audience, can you just describe the scene of her pretending to eat the orange? The scene that we're talking about is like the beginning of the film. Jung-soo and Haimi
0: go to have dinner together and they're like having a couple of drinks. And then Haimi mentions that she does pantomime. I think she looks at a tangerine and then puts her hand up and like pretends to hold one. And then she goes into this little pantomime of her pretending to peel it and then pretending to like cut up into slices and then putting it in their mouth to eat it. And then she kind of does this on repetition until like it feels very natural and fluid to the point where you can kind of believe she's eating an invisible tangerine. I think what's
2: really cool is on top of that there's another ambiguous of whether or not a well exists how everybody had their own story of what the well was I believe you know she said she fell in a well jong Su's mom said oh I think there was a well the mayor said I don't recall there was a well and then Hami's mom said there was never a well Not only is
0: Su kind of an unreliable narrator because we only get his perspective on things and we jump to the same conclusions he does but Hami's a kind of a giant liar <laughs> She talks about, oh, I'm from your class, do you remember me? No, I don't. Were they ever in the same class? Oh, there's a well that I fell in. you saved me. Was there really a well that I saved you from? Even her appearance kind of ties into that, because she mentioned that she had plastic surgery at some point when they met up. So, like, everything around her is also, is it real, is it not? Is she real, is she not? Well, she never existed. (gasps) Whoa.
1: Raymond, you just give me the goosebumps now, like, is she actually Amy or is she just someone that, like, kind of lived in the neighborhood, or maybe was in the same class as him, and then just pretends to be Amy?
2: Oh, That's a really good point. What if she actually took the identity of Heimi? Heimi's mom's like, oh yeah, she ran away, but she didn't run that far away. She was still definitely, quote-unquote, existing.
0: Guys, I think we just stumbled upon a whole nother subplot in this movie. <laughs>
2: Now that you mention it, like, he didn't even recognize her at all. And she's like, oh, yeah, plastic surgery. And I feel like something traumatizing, like, rescuing someone from a well. I think it's something you would remember, right? And how nobody remembers this idea. Not even the mothers. Like, I don't think she ever fell in well because there was no well. Maybe Heimi never existed. Like, at least not the Heimi in the movie we see.
0: Yeah, it could have easily just been some kind of swindler trying to mess with this guy's head. Who just happens to know about his neighborhood I guess
2: I don't know what you can swindle off a poor person from (laughs) I guess sex and looking after your cat and picking up from the airport
1: (laughs) I mean there's also the possibility that her parents are just like lying about not knowing the well to kind of not make them look bad as you know bad parents but I think
2: even the mayor was like I don't recall well or whatever I don't and I feel like the mayor would know a lot of the area like why would he lie what's his incentive when uh, Johnson went visit
0: the mayor, he was with a bunch of people doing something. What were they doing again? Was he like up for re-election, or were they like doing some kind of development? He works on an active greenhouse. That doesn't really feel like a mayor responsibility, in my opinion. But I, who am I to say?
2: I mean, if you're a small town mayor, you need a side gig, or you need a main gig to your side gig, right? Like mayors don't pay that much if you're a small town.
0: Oh, so he's a greenhouse guy first and a mayor second?
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I guess. Like, we don't know too much of the mayor. The mayor's kind of a side plot character. Yeah, he's got, like, what, two lines? Maybe, like, three. One minute of screen time? Yeah, he has the other line of, like, can you sign this form about my my dad? He's like, I don't know your dad. If he doesn't know the dad, maybe
0: he doesn't know about the well either. Oh.
2: Well, he said he doesn't know about that. He said, oh, I don't think he's a a good neighbor. He's like, I I barely interact with the dude.
1: Because it sounds like he was pretty recluse. Hmm. I don't know, like, maybe he knows the town well, but then, like, it's one singular well. Like, who knows where it is, right? Like, maybe he just, like, overlooked it this whole time.
0: I mean, I'm willing to believe that. It's, like, one well in this giant—well, not giant, this, like, sparsely populated town full of, like, a bunch of wells or
2: greenhouses and crop. I'm willing to believe. That maybe he just overlooked it and forgot. It brings back to the point where Jiangsu Su finds every single abandoned greenhouse, and then Ben goes, like, oh, I burnt one— and then John-Sue's like, well, I never found the one you burnt. And then Ben says, I don't think you looked hard enough. And that might be just all connected. Sometimes you just don't find something that you're looking for. Or like you just don't know something. You don't even know what you don't know.
0: I mean, You don't know it, so how could you know it? You don't know what you could not know. <laughs> what?
2: There's four things. There's know what you know, know what you don't know. Uh, don't know what you know. And don't know what you don't know. <laughs> very, very Philosophical. Alright, okay. I think it's part of those like don't know what you don't know where you don't even know that you don't know of something existing, you know, so like the well or the cat or like all that stuff then I guess in that from an audience perspective is that falls the category where we know that we don't know whether or not there was a well. But maybe there's more. Maybe there's other things that we might have missed. We don't even know what we don't know. <laughs> there, there might have been like clues or metaphors. Actually, there was one metaphor I really liked where Ben was well, doing the makeup on the other girl. It almost kind of like a mortician doing makeup on a dead corpse. That's why I like that parallel. I, I didn't see that at all.
1: <laughs> I vaguely remember, but I don't know. Maybe... Maybe he just watches a lot of, like, YouTube videos on makeup for some reason.
0: I always interpreted that him as dressing up a doll because these girls are playthings, right? How kids dress up dolls, and I guess, like, little girls would practice makeup on dolls. I always interpreted that, not like a corpse man.
2: I mean, it depends on how you interpret. Is Ben, you know, treating a plaything, or actually treating us dead people? I think why, from the audience perspective, we more likely believe Ben didn't murder them, Oh, there's two scenes that I really think drives home Ben is psychopathic. In the cooking scene, he says, Like how humans offer sacrifice to God, I create a sacrifice for myself and eat it. The sacrifice is a metaphor. And I think that's kind of weird to say of like food that you cook up. But I think it draws parallel with how he quote unquote dresses up the girl and sacrifice her to God. With the second scene of the whole, you know, the weather and burning farmhouses make him feel like, you know, this is inevitability, like kind of like an act of God.
0: I see that more as him liking himself to God. Sacrifices his food and he's eating it, so he's receiving the sacrifice. And he's got such a high, like, social status. He might as well be a
2: God compared to, like, Jung-soo. Then if we do interpret that Ben is killing these people, where he treats these females as, quote-unquote, abandoned farmhouses... Then he he sees himself as God. He's like, he's just cleaning up the earth of these lonely girls. Yeah, like his old, like monologue about how it's like the rain. It's not malicious or anything. It's just the force of nature or just how it is. And I think what else also makes Ben a little bit on the psychopathic side is there was one scene he was talking about, I don't have memories of shedding tears. He's not sure if he ever felt sad. Yeah, that's some stone cold stuff right there.
1: Maybe he's just trying to be edgy and cool.
2: Is that something you would say to your friend? Hey, man, I don't shed tears. I just don't know what it feels like to be sad. I mean, when I was an edgy teenager, maybe. <laughs> I think he's pretty genuine, though. He's like, yo, I just don't feel sad. I, I just don't know what it feels like.
1: <laughs> maybe he's trying to like, be tough, you know, like, like, toxic masculinity. Or,
0: or maybe, what if? Ben's life is so good, he's never felt sad or jealous.
2: These are all foreign concepts to him. He only knows about like, happiness and success. Actually, there's a really good quote where he says, I think you're being too serious. It's no fun when you're serious. Maybe his life is so good, he can just like play or whatever. Life is great for him.
0: I mean, if you think about it, it kind of is. When uh, Junsu was stalking Ben, what did he do? He went to, like, the art gallery to have dinner. He was just, like, driving around aimlessly for no reason. He did a casual stroll whatever he wanted. It's just the most carefree life I've ever seen.
1: I just want to say that I feel like a lot of people, like, aspire to be, like, Ben and just having his lifestyle of just being able to do whatever all day. I bet he's probably some type of day trader or something and just make a couple of trades a day and then just enjoy the rest of the day to do whatever he likes.
0: Funny enough, as I mentioned before, Burning was based off a short story by Murakumi. In the short story, that is Ben's job. In the restaurant scene, which is also in the short story, the Jung-Soo character asks the Ben character, oh, what do you do for a living? He says, oh, I just do import, exports, trades, yeah, whatever stuff. He kind of passes it off, so
2: he is probably a day trader. Though in a movie, he says, oh... I just do things here and there. Uh, I don't have anything between work or play. Like He's even more mysterious. And the point that makes him seem smug, it says, you probably wouldn't even know, even if I told you.
0: Which is funny, because that line is directly lifted from the inner monologue main character has in the short story as well. Because, I don't know the exact phrasing, but it's something to the effect of the main character was thinking to himself, oh man, that sounds kind of complicated. If you didn't explain to me, I probably wouldn't even know. And they just gave Ben that line in the movie. It's really just neat to see all these little things.
1: So I guess in the movie, he's portrayed as more arrogant versus in the book, he's a little bit more modest. Um, It's a little hard to say. I'm
0: just going to... I guess I'll just gush about the short story a little bit. In the short, the plot structure is one-to-one. It's almost exactly the same. And even the dialogue is almost the same. Just like a little changes here and there. And none of the characters have names. So I'll just refer to like the protagonist as man... The Ben character as boyfriend and Me as woman, just for, like, simplicity. Much like in the movie, in the short story, we only get the perspective of the man. Everything's from his point of view and, like, his interpretation of things. And his interpretation of the boyfriend character was very emotionally distant and a little bit cold. There's, like, no air of smugness to it because you also get the main character doubting himself. Oh, his job sounds complicated. I probably won't even know. Or, like, some of the effect of oh, those two seem really close, they're probably dating, but it's not my place to ask. Or, oh, this guy is really cool, but he doesn't seem like he's interested in talking too much about himself, so I won't pry. There's a little bit more like understanding of why the main character is a bit more passive, where in the movie, Jung-soo just doesn't ask questions, he doesn't bring up any points. But in the book, we get all these little inner thoughts saying, like, eh, it's not worth the effort, oh, it's not that important, whatever. And then Ben just comes off as kind of
2: distant and cold,
0: but at the same time, he never explains himself because the main character never asked him to.
2: I think it draws a great parallel between this, the short story, the movie, and Great Gatsby. I think there was one point where John is like, oh, isn't he kind of like the Great Gatsby? And it's a great parallel between Jong being the unreliable narrator, Ben being Gatsby, and then Heimi being Daisy, the one who doesn't know what's going on all the time. Gatsby also had a like, mysterious job, never explained. And we just see this has a nod toward Great Gatsby as well as Faulkner's Burn Barning. It's not exactly as a one-to-one comparison
0: to the movie. It took me a little while to really grasp it, and I only kind of put the last pieces together when Jackie was talking about uh, Jung-soo's father's court case. So on Faulkner's barn burning, it's colonial times. There's a black family who's in a bit of trouble. The dad was in court for a crime that he may or may not committed, and he's been too prideful to say whether he did it or not, and that exact crime was burning down the barn of this richer white man. And then when Jackie was talking about the court case and how Zheng Su's dad was too prideful to admit fault, oh man, that's, that's where it kind of ties together. But one of the main themes of Faulkner's was the idea of justice and the justice of self or the justice to stay with your family. Is it worth pursuing a sense of morality if it will hurt those around you? And I feel like all our characters, especially Zheng Su, have this kind of dilemma with themselves. Zheng Su followed his own justice when he pieced all this circumstantial evidence against Ben and decides to kill him because he thinks he's a murderer. And then in the book, that's kind of like what happened to the son of the man who burned the barn, because at some point he starts suspecting his father, is my father a barn burner or is he like a good man? Not exactly as ambiguous as the movie, because I think in the book, the interpretation is, yes, your father does burn barns when he's mad at people. But there's there's a little bit of ambiguity to say maybe he doesn't. But the son kind of just leaps on the idea, oh, my dad's kind of a bad guy. I'm going to snitch on him to the white person and the police. And those actions get his father killed. And then the boy kind of can't go back to his family because his family told him, don't snitch on your dad. And earlier in the book, the dad also said, is it better to follow your own justice, be alone, or just stick with your family and like tell a lie or like cover up something so then the boy kind of ends with a dead father no family and walks off on his own and Soo is kind of the same where he followed his own justice kills ben because he's under the assumption that he killed Mi and now he has no one because like the last scene is him just stripping down naked burning the corpse in the car and walking off alone exactly like the book so a lot of the parallels to faulkner's burning
2: aren't in the plot but it's in like the theming I actually found the last scene, the stabbing scene, was so well done. It was just so sudden. Where he, he just started with, where's Haimi? You said you wanted to see me with Haimi. You didn't come with Haimi." And then just the stabbing. And then the way he looks him in the eye right before he died. Was the burning of a car a symbolism of almost like John Sue trying to burn a greenhouse? Or his, his version of burning a greenhouse. Like he is the inevitable now. And that whole like scene is also like no dialogue after Ben
0: asks, hey, where's Amy It's just silence, pain, and this visceral scenes of him just stabbing
2: him from afar. Spooky stuff. Is this the way John Su sees us, uh, quote-unquote, eat the rich? That's his way of saying, like, this is inevitable. This is just a force of nature. This is how society should operate in, like, some twisted
1: form. So I guess it's a good illustration of how And what a person would do if they're really just pushed to the very edge of anything. Because if you dissect Su's character, right? He has absolutely nothing going for him. And then Paymi kind of pops into the picture. Now, he kind of has like a pseudo-girlfriend almost. Not really, but he thinks of her that way. So then when she's been taken away from him, it really kind of just like triggered him to do all these things. I feel like... If anybody were to put in that situation, they would probably act out in some ways.
0: I can also like kind of draw parallel to the whole idea of maybe this is how like the lower income feel about the upper class. Oh, they come into my life. They take what they want from it. The one thing I really like. And then what do they do? They just lounge around, do nothing, have lavish parties, hang out with people. They don't work hard. They don't contribute as much as I do. And then at the end, when he violently stabs him, I was like, maybe that's like the resentment that maybe the lower income feel about the higher income. Like, oh, if only I had what you had,
2: if only you were like contributing more, I'm just going to stab you. I think part of it is, you know, we don't see how hard Ben actually works on the side. We don't know what he does for a job. From the couple of scenes we do see where, you know, him interacting in an art gallery in the church, he seems to actually be doing a lot for the community. And I think in that way, Su actually dislikes him even more because he's actually a contributing member in society.
0: Yeah, and like this whole idea of burning, like the name of the movie itself, I feel like it's kind of almost like this triple entendre kind of deal with what's going on in the movie. Like the obvious parallel would be like, burning greenhouses or this least the idea of burning greenhouses so burning comes from that but then there's also this slow burn across the movie how the movie itself is burning to the end or till what it stops and then there's Jung Soo our protagonist he's like been so passive haphazard and like lackadaisical the whole time and then once he notices Jaime's missing and he has this all this circumstantial evidence against Ben he starts having his own burning desire to not be passive to become more of a proactive protagonist
2: in the story, and that. So it's, I just feel like the name "burning itself" was so appropriate for this movie. I actually had another interpretation of the name. I thought "burning" in this sense is he's kind of like burning his life away by not doing anything. It's like a slow burn toward toward nothing, like just burning through your time, burning through all your resources, and not knowing what you're doing with it. Actually, another good point you bring up um, in terms of execution. I did feel the slow burn of the movie it was a little slow some of the scenes were done as a more artistic kind of feel but it could have been a shorter movie which would have helped with some of the audience who were not as patient it's almost like kind of
0: entropy in this movie like everyone's burning to a stop or like burning their lives away everything's like up in flames almost metaphorically and and literally
1: isn't that just life we're all just burning
2: away So one of the things that Burning is like almost the hunger, you know, how flames like draws uh, and like kind of consumes things that it crosses the path with the whole small hunger and great hunger. I think one of the really cool things about the cinematography and the technical is there was actually a lot of sounds of like drumming and drumming alludes to like African drum dances or the whole small hunger and big hunger. And they, they draw a lot of connections between the African way of how we see the world and, you know, that what we want is a desire in the bigger picture. And it, they really use those sounds like very well throughout the movie.
0: Yeah, I think that the sound design and the background music was all very well done overall. It was very suspenseful, especially in the second half, because at the first half, I feel like it was really ambient, really relaxed and just kind of meandering around kind of like our protagonist. But then when there's that big shift in the middle, it kind of gets more suspenseful, more dramatic. It's more like violins. It feels almost like a horror music at some point, like near the end.
1: I felt like overall, like the soundtrack was very gloomy, sometimes even very melancholy. I felt like it really kind of suited the theme and the direction that the movie was going.
2: And on top of that, I think the actors did really well, where every role was played well, Hemi being the carefree but secretly lonely girl, Jong-Soo being the envious, awkward guy, while Ben is being the cool rich but smug guy
0: yeah it's like no wonder that all three of these actors were nominated for best actor supporting and new actress Stephen young plays a very good emotionally distant yet very handsome man like he's appropriately charming but also appropriately cold you don't
2: really know his true intentions i thought that was played very well one thing i did wish more i saw the cinematography was more continuous shots so a lot of cuts happen and there was shaky camera, which I understand was to be more first person with jong and be unsure of everything. But I did feel some of the execution, they could have done more continuous shots in some areas. I don't know the proper term here, but like a lot of wide shots, like there's a lot of full shots of characters'
0: entire bodies from like head to toe going on. We ourselves are distant from the characters, much like how jun feels distant from Ben. I feel like that was a kind of neat parallel, but at the same time, I kind of wish it zoomed in a little bit more so we get more of the facial reactions and what the characters are thinking or feeling for their like, emotions
2: yeah i totally agree i feel they kind of use a little more of the camera angles and stuff to really portray you know just zoom in and see what everybody's thinking the one scene i really like though is the far away camera at the very end of the stabbing so we can see the entire thing as we pan toward then trying to run back in the car and then he just gets stabbed a couple more times i thought that was really good
0: yeah it was like one continuous take too so you get like the full visceral reactions i feel like in a lot of american cinema you get like stab and then like a Zoom in, cut to like the, where the stab is done. You zoom in, a cut to like close up of the face of the person who got stabbed and his reaction. And you cut again to the person who stabbed him. Cut back to the full body. Like, but here it's just like one take. You see as much as you need to see. There's no need to like like show off more
2: than you need to. I think that's done really well. The one thing though, I do feel the pacing is a little slow as well throughout the movie. I understand that was you kind of do a build up at the same time some scenes were definitely on the unnecessary side not that i didn't like it but i can see it could cater to a bigger audience if they did so
0: i understand the feeling that oh maybe this movie does drag but i feel as though dragging is part of the intention
2: and nothing stayed more than needed to be yeah that's a great point so there's a couple scenes for one when they were panning toward the sky when they were just talking and stuff i understand it was to create that atmosphere but at the same time it didn't feel too necessary to have those extra, uh, I think it was like a good 20-30 seconds. As well as there was a lot of cuts of jong Su kind of living his day-to-day life. The only scene I did like was him showing up to the job interview and then just ditching. But some other scenes where he would just randomly jerk off, I felt it was somewhat unnecessary. like Some of the sex scenes were a little too long. It wasn't really required. I
0: don't know, I think him masturbating was a fine scene. <laughs> and I'll explain why. <laughs> Cause, okay. cause this guy is like he's got so hung up over this girl. He's misses her a lot, and he's trying to like, he really misses her feel, her touch, her presence. So he goes to her room. What did they do in that room the first time they met? You know, a little bit of that, a little bit of this. So that's just kind of like for him to get the feel of her again, to feel it's almost if if she's with him in like an intimate moment, but she's not. She's gone. It's just kind of
2: emphasize that loneliness he's feeling. I just felt like the scene was a little too long, though. Made me a little uncomfortable
1: with him just having his pants down on her bed. Um, Was that really necessary? I don't know. So I remember, like, during a scene when he was masturbating, right? Like, obviously, one he wanted to relive the moment when he first had sex with Hami, right? But then he also looked down the window and was observing this tall tower like up on a hill. What if he was masturbating obviously sexually to Hami, but two, he was also masturbating to the idea of one day of him becoming successful and obtaining everything he wants in life?
2: Symbolically, the Namsan Tower in South Korea and Seoul is one of the highest points in the city. And maybe him looking at that as like, ah, this is my path toward greatness. And maybe Hemi is like a quote-unquote quote, stepping stone to him. From him transitioning from Beta to Alpha. <laughs> and just going with that point, I feel we learn a lot of things in the movie about like hubris, about envy, about passion, and about hardworking. And just society in general and class divide. I think this movie is just great overall on different themes. And you can really take each of the theme and then take a lot of metaphor out of it.
1: I guess the next time that someone tells me wrong, and I'm actually wrong, I'll make sure to admit that I'm wrong instead of being stubborn. I guess that's a good takeaway.
2: Yeah, make sure just don't throw your life away to stab some rich dude. Like, I know you might get some satisfaction out of it, but yeah, I kind of feel bad for Jong Su in a lot of ways. I think, like, my main takeaway from this movie right now, at least, is like just don't be
0: so passive. Try to ask questions. Try to like start rather than wait for motivation or some kind of ambition to come to you because it's a lot better to just start doing something than just lie around and feel sorry for yourself for however many weeks he was feeling sorry for himself.
2: All right. Well, I think that's all the time we have, folks.
0: Yeah, this was a bit longer than I guess we wanted it to be, but there's a lot to talk about and I don't even know if we're fully done talking about
1: it. If you made it this far into the podcast, I thank you for listening. Alright, guys, so make sure to follow us at Real Rice Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, as well as your favorite podcasting app and at realricepodcast.ca.